Well, good morning, church family. Good to see each and every one of you. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. And today, we will actually finish up this wonderful Gospel that we've been in for several months now. But before we begin, I want to share something with you that you may find informative. And uh, yeah, it's near and dear to my heart. So believe it or not, one of the things that Navy SEALs were supposed to be good at is something called over the beach. And so OTB operations are things where we would practice inserting around the shores of the world. Sometimes they were sandy, sometimes they were rocky. Uh, oftentimes we would insert via submarines and then small boats. But regardless, uh, it definitely uh, required us to get wet along the way. And so I remember one occasion when we were on the coast of Virginia and we were training one stormy night and it was cold and we were working our way to a shoreline. Now, in my platoon was a big fellow named Mark. Seems like his name is fitting for the gospel mark that we're studying today. And to give you scale comparison, if you were to describe me as a full-size truck, Mark was a bulldozer. He was a big fella, right? But his size was deceiving. For every Friday, we had a 10-mile run that was mandatory. They would actually have roll call on the bus when they would transport us to this run. And Mark would finish under 60 minutes every Friday. So this big boy can move, right? And I was thankful that he was on our side. But this gentle giant also had three daughters, and he was a kind soul. And he was the communication guy in our platoon. So he was responsible for carrying all those big radios that were loaded with crypto. If you don't know what crypto is, think national secret and a really big deal if you lose it. And I was the medical guy. And so as we were driving along in the boat, I had a backpack that was filled with all the medical supplies to rescue pilots. And back in the 80s, when this night happened, we didn't have any of the fancy stretchers that they have today. Mine was something the size of a refrigerator that folded in half. And so it was a rather large pack. And so Mark and I were on the starboard side of the boat. That's right side for you land lovers. And we were moving into the shoreline. Now, because we had such heavy rucks, our goal was to wait until we hit the shore before we stepped out. And so as we're moving in, we start leaning forward to reduce our signature and it's dark, and then we feel the boat kind of surge and hit the sand. Well, we're excited, so we both jump off immediately so we can hit the shore. But instead of hitting terra firma underneath our feet, we sank like rocks to the bottom of the ocean. Not what we were expecting. Now, while I was on the bottom, I had a lowering line on my backpack, and that allowed me to find the end of it, and I swam to the surface, and I had just enough line to get my lips to break the surface and get a well-needed breath. While I'm treaded water, I didn't have fins on because I thought I was going to walk on land. I'm doing my best to tread water, and I'm also looking around for my buddy Mark. Well, after a couple minutes, he surfaced. And I said, all right, Mark's good. I worked my way over to the side of the boat. I grabbed this boat, and then eventually we made our way to the shoreline. We circle up in a perimeter, and that is where Mark let our commanding officer know, or actually officer in charge know, that he lost the backpack and he lost his primary weapon while he's trying to free himself from that sea anchor. So needless to say, training was canceled. And in parallel with all these activities, we were sent by the officer to get in line and start diving for the lost equipment. So we started diving, and also he sent one of our guys to go find an ancient device for you young people called a payphone, because there was no cell phones back then. And so while he's doing that, we're doing breath holds trying to find this equipment. And I will tell you, Mark and his future look very glim. Now, for those of you who don't understand the gravity of this situation, 
think prison time and loss of job and also the loss of the job for the commanding officer. Like this was a really big deal. Well, as we're out there breath holding for at least an hour, there's a silhouette on the horizon coming towards the shoreline. And we see this man. And then he actually wades into the water and we recognize he has a suit on. And this guy is swimming towards us in a suit. So he's all decked out. And as he gets closer, we recognize that he's our operations officer named Bo. So Bo is out there and he goes, well, I guess we won't find the gear on the top of the surface. So he goes underwater and he pops back up and he goes, I think we're going to need more help. And as quickly as this guy arrived, he was gone. So we keep breath holding. And about an hour or two later, a hundred seals show up with dive gear. And the whole team gets out there and we start searching. Now, after a couple hours, something wonderful happened. One of the guys comes up with this giant backpack filled with the radios and the crypto still in it. So no prison time for Mark. That's good news. And then about an hour later, it's almost like Excalibur coming out of the water. This weapon comes out of the ocean, and we're all cheering with delight. And you see Mark sitting on the berm there, really just the proverbial picture of a man sucking his thumb, like he was distraught, right? And he is just grinning ear to ear, maybe even tears, probably the salt water, right? But something wonderful happened. You see, Mark, he experienced in a short amount of time incredible grief and then a glorious transformation because he was hopeless, and then he had a tremendous amount of hope. And as I was reflecting on that story the other day, I'm thinking about Mark and what happened to him. I couldn't help but wonder about each one of you today. I wonder if you have ever experienced grief where you could feel the weight of it, where you had no hope, and you certainly didn't imagine things were going to turn out well. I bet a lot of you could testify to that. And I'm hoping that a lot of you could also testify that you've seen God do great things in your own life. But here's the deal. As much as what Mark went through was significant, it pales in comparison to a group of people that we're going to learn about today in God's Word. Imagine the loss and the grief of the disciples when Jesus died and that tomb was sealed by that heavy stone. Imagine the despair they felt. And so today, we're going to take a look at God's Word and we're going to learn that they did experience grief, but we're also going to see that they experienced glory in the resurrected Christ. So with that, before we get started, would you join me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here today, we turn our hearts and minds to your word, specifically the text of Mark 15 and 16, where we witness the profound mystery of grief turned to glory. We remember, Lord, the heavy sorrow that fell upon those who loved and followed Jesus as they laid him in the tomb. And we reflect on their uncertainty, their questions, and their grief. We feel their longing, Father, and we recognize that longing within ourselves. But we also look forward with anticipation to the empty tomb, to the angel's message, to the revelation of your triumph plan that turned mourning into dancing. I pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, to see this story anew. Open our ears to hear your voice and open our hearts to feel the emotions, the confusion, the awe, and the joy that filled those who first discovered that Jesus was risen. For those among us who may be seeking today, who may be skeptical, we ask that you guide their investigation and that they may find the truth that sets us free. And for those who believe, embolden us, Father, to move from fear to faith, to grasp the hope of the resurrection and to share it with others with love and courage. 
We ask your blessing upon your, our time and your word, and may it not just inform us, but transform us. May we see your face, feel your love, and be moved to action. In the powerful and precious name of Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior, we pray. And the church said, Amen, Amen church. Now, the gospel of Mark focuses on Christ as a servant. Mark 10, 45 is the key verse. You may want to write that verse down and learn it. This is the verse that changed my life as a young teenage boy. Uh, it says, For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, at 16, someone who grew up in the church, it was kind of going through the motions. This was like a lightning bolt into my soul. I thought, if the creator of the universe came to be a servant, and I'm to be his follower, what choice do I have but to serve? To serve in whatever capacity he calls me. And so this verse really just changed how I went about schooling and every other interaction I had, from all those interesting jobs that you have as a teenager, from a bank teller handing out lollipops to kids in a suit in 110 degree weather, to a shoe salesman, and uh, yes, yeah, so many stories about being a shoe salesman in high school. But I did learn a lot of things about people, and I count those days as a privilege, because I got to serve and represent the Lord with every person that I met. Now, there are two themes in this verse, service and sacrifice, and they're unpacked throughout the entire book. Mark's his writing reminds me of the USA Today News. Remember that newspaper? Big, colorful pictures and short, simple descriptions, right? But it was action-packed. And Mark is full of action, and it shows Jesus as a faithful servant of our Lord. Now, Mark's purpose is to announce the words and the works of Jesus Christ to the Gentile audience. And at 16 chapters, it's the shortest gospel in the New Testament, and it's tailored for its audience, the Romans. Now, the key word in Mark is immediately. You will see it over and over. And again, it's this picture of something that's supposed to happen with action. And this word sets the book's intense pace and focuses on activity and movement. Today, we've arrived at our final message, as I mentioned earlier, in the Gospel of Mark. And it's called From Grief to Glory. You may have a handout. If not, I believe there's some in the back if you'd like to take notes. The Burial and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. In our short time together, we're just going to observe two points. They're right there in our text. And then we'll close with a very clear application for our daily lives. So let's look at point number one. Grief, the burial of Jesus Christ. Mark 15, starting in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now let's face it. Death is an uncomfortable topic. Today, as always, it remains one of the greatest sorrows in all the earth. But as believers, we don't need to fear it. Jesus has conquered death. When we read about the death of Jesus on the cross, we also need to remember that his followers did not know the sting of death had been removed yet. 
When the sun set on the day of preparation, all hope had vanished for those who placed their faith in Christ. Their hearts were heavy and despair hovered over the disciples who fled in fear. Now, we of course know the rest of the story today, but Jesus' followers did not. When the stone was rolled in front of the tomb, it not only extinguished any light from entering the tomb, but it also vanquished any hope that remained for the disciples who followed Jesus. Last week, we learned that Jesus' work on the cross was finished when he said, it is finished. All of our guilt, all of our shame has been removed because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for his followers. And that is good news. Charles Spurgeon reminds us when he said, cling to that cross which took your sin away and serve him who served you. Another quote that I cling to when I learned Mark 10, 45. Thinking about what Jesus has done for us, how can we not serve him in whatever capacity he leads us? Now, Jesus died on Friday around 3 p.m., and the Jewish Sabbath begins at 6 p.m., right around sundown. Once the Sabbath, which is a Hebrew word for stop, begins, no work may take place. None at all. That is why the day before was called Preparation Day. Makes sense. People would gather twice the food for family, firewood for warmth and cooking, and even feed for the animals. Of note, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23, has a specific law when it comes to those who are being executed. They must be buried on the same day. To leave a body hanging after death was barbaric, and only the Gentiles would do such a thing. Enter brave Joseph of Arimathea from our text. According to Luke 23, 50 through 51, he was a member of the Sanhedrin council and very well respected, and a good and righteous man. He did not consent to the council's actions to crucify Jesus. Matthew 27, 57 tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus as well. His request was daring because it amounted to a confession and commitment to a condemned and crucified Jesus. Despite the fact that Jesus had been crucified for high treason and that Joseph was not related to him, he still boldly asked for the body of Jesus Christ. This approach of the Sabbath only lent to the urgency of his action as well. Now, Pilate regarded the request, but was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Contemporary records show that crucified men would last for two to three days on the cross. Something unusual must have happened for Jesus to die in just a few hours. One might conclude that Jesus decided when he would die, and that there's no mistake that he died on Passover as the perfect lamb of God. Now, Pilate summoned the centurion responsible for the execution to verify the death of Jesus. And we know from John 19, verse 34, that a soldier pierced Jesus with a spear to ensure that he was dead. This also ensured that Jesus' bones were not broke like the thieves to his left and his right to expedite their death before the Sabbath. Not only was the Passover lamb required to be spotless, and in Jesus' case, no sin, but it was also to have no broken bones. Now, the centurion reported back to Pilate that Jesus was, in fact, dead. Only then was the body released for burial. It's further worth recalling that the Romans crucified hundreds of thousands of people during their centuries of power, and there's not one record of one person surviving crucifixion. Side note, one of the theories of this historical account is that Jesus did not die, but that he fainted. It's called the swoon theory. As a military man like the centurion, 
I can assure you that one who is around death can tell the difference between a dead body and a live body. Joseph takes Jesus' body and prepares it, and it takes and lays Jesus in a tomb. And we learn from John 19, 38 through 42, that Nicodemus, also a member of the Sanhedrin Council, assists him with the burial. Jewish law prohibited corpses from being buried inside Jerusalem. Rather, they had to be buried at least 50 cubits, that's 75 feet, outside of the city walls. Now, the Mishnah, which is a collection of oral teachings from hundreds of rabbis, actually has very specific size requirements for the vault. They're to be six foot by nine foot. And over thousands of them have been discovered outside of Jerusalem today from archaeological digs. The burial of Jesus closes with a reminder from our passage that the women who followed Jesus witnessed where he was placed. It's a beautiful picture of ladies who stayed with Jesus during the crucifixion, and it's a moment when all the male disciples fled. I'm sure as they watched from afar through tears that their hope was crushed and they were trying to make sense of it all. But then we enter our second point, glory the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment has seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not simply part of the gospel. It is the main event. And if the main event of the greatest person who ever lived is the resurrection, one could and should argue that it's the greatest event in all of human history. Without the resurrection, the cross would have been for nothing. I like how the Apostle Paul captures it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, by saying, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. All four Gospels tell the resurrection story, and all four shares of Jesus' crucifixion. Each writer provides unique elements for us to see the whole picture. And when you put all the narratives together, we receive everything the Holy Spirit wanted us to see. Now something that is instructional and I pray helpful is knowing that the Jews had no words for days back then. They didn't have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, etc. Instead, they numbered the days. All numbers were related to the Sabbath. They started numbering the days after the Sabbath. The first day after the Sabbath, the second day, the third day. You get the picture, right? Now, time was measured differently as well. A new day starts at sundown, roughly 6 p.m. We know Jesus was in the grave before 6 p.m. on preparation day. So that counts as one day in the grave. He was in the tomb for all the Sabbath. That's two days. And we also know that he was in the grave for approximately 12 hours on Sunday. That's three days. Up until this point, Saturday 
The Sabbath was the most important day. From the resurrection on, Sunday becomes the most important day for followers of Christ. One other thing we learn from the gospel accounts is that this Saturday, this Sabbath day when Jesus was in the tomb, was a very busy day for some religious people. It's very interesting to consider that it was a day when you were supposed to stop all work. And when I say stop, that means you don't even walk a certain distance. There were very strict rules. But in Matthew 27, we learn the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate on the Sabbath. They go to Pilate, a Gentile. And why do they go there? They remind Pilate that Jesus said he would be raised from the dead. And they asked and pled with him to secure the tomb. They asked for a guard to secure the tomb of Jesus Christ. Now, a Roman guard is anywhere from 10 to 30 soldiers. And so they're placed to guard the tomb of Jesus. Now, remember, the women who watched Jesus placed in the tomb would not have known this, for they were actually observing the Sabbath at home. Now, look at Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. I love this scene. What an amazing scene. And let me add a footnote. The stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let the women in. The ladies observed that there is an empty tomb where Jesus was placed. There is no body. He is resurrected. And just as he said he would be, they learned from the angel that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. In each gospel account, a heavenly messenger is the first to proclaim the good news. And it seems fitting that this good news comes from heaven. It's also informative that the angel tells the first witnesses to go and tell. For my studying, it doesn't appear that they signed up to take a class, but instead were obedient after they got over the big shock, right? Now, I remember a while back, Pastor David, who is my friend, he might have did a little shout out and a little jab at grandparents one day when he said that there was a pastor, he didn't name anybody, but he said that there was a pastor, there was a grandparent that constantly sends him pictures of his grandchildren. <laughs> Maybe. Now, I have to confirm that David does get a lot of pictures from me as a grandfather. And I thought, you know, the application is very clear in the text this Sunday that we are to go and tell. And seeing that I had a grandson born this week, I thought I'd go and tell you. So <laughs> we have a baby boy that's entered the family. We're very excited. Surrounded by four granddaughters, he's safely in Texas, so he has a little time to get ready to meet his cousins who are in Georgia and here. But I will agree with my friend David in that the reason he brought that up, grandparents don't need any reason to tell people, right, other than the fact they love those grandkids. Any grandparents in the house today? Right? Do we need training? 
No, we don't. We tell people because we love them babies. Some of you are sitting by them. What a joy, right? Now, I will tell you that I see this as a wonderful opportunity to equip each and every one of you to share some of the greatest news of all time. If you're a follower of Christ today, I want you to leave this building prepared to go and tell other people about the greatest love of your life, Jesus Christ, how he rescued you and saved you from the pit of hell. And so Keith and I, we have a very near and dear friend who has trained us years ago on something called take off, take off to touchdown. And I'm going to train every one of you today on how to share your faith. It's pretty simple. But before you begin and you take off on any plane, and I'm not a pilot, but I've been in a few rides of uh, airframes around the world, they all do one thing before they take off. Can you guess what it is? They fuel up. Now, if you don't know what fueling up looks like when you're sharing the gospel, it's called praying up, right? I've learned that you want to talk to God about people before you talk to people about God, because he actually loves that child, that parent, that neighbor, that coworker, that person that you're going to meet one day even more than you. And he wants you to be a faithful witness to him. Now, what I shared with Greg many years ago, the guy that actually shared this style with Keith and myself, is something called the black truck technique. Now, you're thinking, okay, that's a stretch, Todd, but what do you got with a black truck? How is this related to the gospel? Well, here's what I learned. Years ago, when I bought my first black truck, all of a sudden, it seemed like everybody was driving black trucks. I saw them everywhere. And you probably recognize the same thing with the vehicle you drive. All of a sudden, you're driving it, and you're like, wow, there's a Toyota Prius right there, you know? Beep, beep. And then, you know, there's this guy that gets one mile a gallon like me going right beside you, going beep, beep, right? <laughs> but it's this idea, you see the vehicle you drive. But what I've learned is when you pray for lost people, you see lost people. And you recognize they're all around you. So once you're prayed up, you're ready to take off. And there's three questions that you want to know how to ask. You got some fill in the blanks if you got that little handout today. The first one is to learn to ask good questions. So ask questions. Get to know the person. It's pretty easy actually to ask questions about God with people. A lot of times, Keith, myself, and others, maybe we're in a restaurant, and there's also this technique, I guess you would call it, of recognizing if they actually have the time to talk. If you see a waiter or a waitress and they're hustling and they're just trying to keep up so they don't get fired, that's probably not the time to pull them aside for a five-minute conversation. But today, how many times do you see a waiter or a waitress leaning on the wall texting with their phone, bored to death? That is a target of opportunity, my friends. And so you might want to say, hey, we're going to pray for our dinner. Is there anything we could pray for about you? And a lot of times people will actually say, well, yeah, I'm going to school and I'm a little stressed about that. So you can pray for them. But eventually you want to ask good questions and you want to learn about what their spiritual beliefs are. From there, you can find something to admire. Now, a long time ago, I met my first Wiccan. I didn't even know what a Wiccan was, so I had to look it up. A Wiccan is someone who loves creation, but they don't know who the creator is. So I thought, hey, this is a way to admire someone who loves God's creation. So I could check that. I say, hey, I love the fact that you care about the earth. That's great. But then eventually you want to get from ask, admire to admit on how you need a savior and how you recognize that you were lost in your sins. And so that is the takeoff, my friends. Now, once you get up to that cruising altitude, this is where you get to share the gospel. You've heard it from myself. You've heard it from Pastor Keith. 
and many other people from the pulpit. This is the G-O-S-P-E-L. So if you have students in the Rock Student Ministry, we have posters up there. But it's pretty simple, and it's in a very effective way where you can walk them through what the Bible has to say. And it's this. God has created every one of you to be with him. That's good news, isn't it? I mean, think about it. The creator of the universe desires to have a relationship with you. I think that's wonderful. Because as a guy who still doesn't have a relationship with his dad, an earthly father, it's a big deal to know that I have a heavenly father that loves me and accepts me. So that's the story where it starts off with God. And you could spend a lot of time studying about God and creation versus evolution and all these other wonderful things so you could have these discussions. But then, with all good news, you got to get to the bad news, right? You share the letter O. Our sins separate us from a holy, loving God. And I haven't met a rational person yet who won't at least admit that they've done something wrong. So we all have, right? This pastor, I definitely identify with Paul. When he starts putting down chief of sinner, I'm like, I think you got some stiff competition. So I hope that you also feel the same way when you look at your own life. I feel like the closer you get to God, the longer you've been walking with him, the more you're aware of just how filthy you are and how desperate you are for a savior. And then the letter S stands for sins cannot be removed by good deeds. We struggle with this in the West, don't we? We think we can earn our way to heaven. So many people in the conversations, you're like, are you sure you're going to go to heaven? And they're like, well, I think so, because I've been a pretty good person. I give money to the church. And like, whoa, that's substantial. What else? And you're like, and I feed the poor? Wow, that's really good. But did you know, even your best works, according to Isaiah, are like filthy rags to a holy God. So that tells me we can't earn our way to heaven. And I'm glad. Could you imagine being in heaven saying, how'd you get here? And you're talking about how much you gave, and then I'm talking about what I did. Like, that would be pretty sad, wouldn't it? Instead, we're all going to be there because of the letter P, for pain. You see, God recognized we couldn't earn our way to heaven. And that's why he sent his son Jesus to live that perfect life, to die in your place and to die in mine. And God didn't leave him dead. That is awesome, right? He raised him from the dead to show he has power over the grave. And that's what we witness in the close of this gospel. He has authority over life and death. Now, the part that you know I get excited about, because I've shared it often with you, is the letter E. Stands for everyone. And you know what it means? It means everyone. Everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you're seeking today, it means you. Everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can have eternal life. And the L, that life, it can begin today. That's the gospel. Folks, you've just shared the gospel and you've given them all the information they need. But now it's time to land a plane. And what I heard from pilots, sometimes landing can get a little tricky. There may be some turbulence, but there's two great questions you can ask them. The first one is, did that make sense? And if it didn't, go back and clarify what didn't make sense. But then, once it all makes sense to them and they understand, then it's time to ask that final question. And a lot of times this is like, it reminds me when people don't ask this final question, it's like going fishing with fishing line with no hooks and no bait probably not going to catch a lot of fish. You actually have to ask, is there anything that's keeping you from placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today? And if there is, that's where you have to put skin in the game. Maybe you meet me on the sidewalk and we go through this and I'm just a train wreck and I need some help. Maybe it's financially, maybe it's medically, whatever it is, 
you actually have to put skin in the game and show that person what a follower of Christ looks like. Is it awkward? Is it risky? You bet it is. Is it worth it? I think so. And so that's the gospel, and that's the good news. And so I want every one of you to walk out today having a grasp of this. And if you need a refresher, Greg put this great app out called Life in Six Words. Put the number six in there. You can download it. It'll walk you through it. It's phenomenal, and it'll make a difference. I promise you. All right. As we wrap up our time together and this message of grief to glory, I want to share a closing thought. If we really desire to see God in a mighty way, to move in a mighty way, to fully understand and embrace the life that Jesus has for us, we must be brought to an end of our own strength. Now, we're a pretty proud group in the West, but we have to be driven to our knees and realize that on our own, we can accomplish nothing. Dallas Willard is a man I learned a lot from when I was growing up. He once said, the Christian life is what you do when you realize that you can do nothing. Again, we're a proud people, but once you realize you can do nothing, that's when God can start to work with that clay. Each of us will endure suffering in this world. We're going to face loss, grief, stress, financial woes, relationship challenges, and oftentimes it's with the ones that we love the most. And each of us will also face death. Remember that sobering stat? One out of one will die. How we respond to suffering can be a great witness, and the world is watching. You might be watching online today, and I know a few friends that are near and dear to my heart today are watching online, and they are suffering, and they are hurting. But I know this, and I've shared with before, oftentimes our best witness is in our worst circumstance. Years ago, right around Christmas, I met parents at the altar. And I could tell that their hearts were heavy. They had tears before they got to me. And they said, Pastor, would you come to our house and pray for our daughter? She'd been given two months to live. I said, of course I will. And so I make my way over to that house. And if you're wondering what I was thinking, I was thinking, Lord, I feel so inadequate. What am I going to say to a young woman who's about the age of our son, who has two months to live, who's married and has a little girl. But I went, and I got to meet the most amazing woman who already understood what Philippians 1.21 says, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And somewhere in our conversation, I asked her permission to film her story. I said, your story will challenge and encourage men and women for years to come. And so I want you to hear her story now. My name's Eleanor Angler, and I'm 34 years old, and um, I have a wonderful husband, Johnny, um, beautiful daughter, she's three. Um, and uh, right after Christmas, I was diagnosed with a stage four, um, very rare, very aggressive cancer. You don't think that you're going to get news like that. You know, I'm young. Um, you just, I didn't feel like I had stage four cancer, but I do. 
my oncologist uh, has shared that statistically um, someone in the state has around two to six months to live. I just think about my family and how that will affect my family. Um, I've prayed harder than I've ever prayed in my life. Um, and just asking God to get me through and he has. And the last day I went to work was right before Christmas break. I haven't been back to work since. Um, I retired at 34 years old from my job as a school counselor. Never thought in a million years that would happen, but here I am. And that's just for the purpose of spending time, as much time as I can with my family, my daughter. You know, I've said this to my husband that we don't really focus on the eternal and this has given me an opportunity to really focus on the eternal um, and just the beauty of life and how wonderful of a gift that really is. Every day that you have with your family is a blessing, um, whether it's a hard day or an easy day, just having that time with your, with your family, with your children. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. I certainly didn't know what was gonna, um, you know, be, um, be happening to me, but here we are. Hope could mean um, either way I go, whether I beat this, you know, I have hope that I could be healed, um, or, you know, I'll see Jesus and I'll be taken care of no matter what, my family will be taken care of no matter what. Everything here is temporary, um, and it's easy to really get wrapped up in little things. Um, they may not seem little to us, but in the grand scheme of things, eternally these little things aren't going to matter. You know, whether we have a bad day at work, um, I've learned to just be thankful for having a day here with my family. I mean, it's, it's difficult because, you know, I think about what I'm leaving behind here and my husband and my family and just how much they mean to me. And um, he just reassures me, you know, no matter what, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Just to know that no matter what happens here, sickness will continue to have eternal life. And that's just the greatest gift we could ever have. I remember having a phone call with Eleanor last March. Just phenomenal fighter, five plus years, with her in a way. And I remember talking with her. And she was crying, saying, I feel like a quitter by going into hospice. And I was like, Dear sister, you are not a quitter. You have fought so valiantly. Your husband and your daughter, five years. You have stayed to pour into them. Eleanor, if you're ready to go home, you go home. She died the next day. She had such a huge impact on my life and that family. Incredible. And I'll never forget those last words that she said. She's like, eternal life, the greatest gift you could ever have. And I think we forget that sometimes. And if you're a skeptic here today, I just want to challenge you. Maybe someone hurt you. Maybe something hurt you, and you're still holding on to that guilt and shame. But you realize by running from Jesus, you let that someone or something continue to hurt you. Instead, you could surrender and give it all to the Lord. He so desperately wants to have a relationship with you. He loves you. You can reject Jesus but you can't ignore him. The resurrection demands a response. And for those of us that are followers of Christ, think about those first century believers who faced certain death by
by sharing their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. When being baptized publicly meant certain death, could we not muster up the courage to talk to a skeptical family member or coworker? Could we not do that? Eternity is at stake, and it matters. Eleanor closed that video and our time on that phone call by saying eternal life, the greatest gift we could ever have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your magnificent plan. Revealed to us in the sacred pages of Mark 15 and 16, where we see the journey from grief to glory, from the sorrowful burial of the Lord Jesus Christ to the miraculous discovery of an empty tomb. We are reminded of your divine love and the promise of the resurrection. Father, for those who are skeptical or uncertain, we pray that your spirit would ignite a desire to investigate the gospel. May doubts lead to questions and questions lead to the pursuit of truth. Open their hearts, Father, to seek and to find you today. For us who believe, take us from fear to faith. Empower us to be courageous witnesses of your good news, reflecting the hope and joy found in the resurrection. Help us to be your hands and feet, serving others with love and compassion, and sharing the gospel with words and deeds. And we thank you for the women who first witnessed the empty tomb and for their example of faithfulness, even the face of fear and uncertainty. May we, too, run with eagerness to tell others about your love and redemption, casting aside our hesitations. Father, as we move from this place, may we carry with us the reality of the empty tomb, the power of the resurrected Christ, and the call to share this life-changing truth with the world. Guide us, strengthen us, and fill us with your love, that we might be faithful ambassadors of your kingdom. And for my brothers and sisters listening, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the glorious name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen, church.